Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. could affect our bodies, could affect 
affect our reality. And it just absolutely fascinated me. So that really shaped my career. I ended up studying psychology as an undergrad, going on to graduate school to study counseling, to continue to read and and um, be very fascinated with this type of research. And I love science and I love spirituality. It was as if the science led me into this opening of really opening my mind to all the possibilities for additional ways of understanding, additional ways of being that maybe even science hadn't quite yet caught up to. And when I was reading about your book, your forthcoming book and your work, I was just getting so excited because this is right up my alley with really, really experiencing that those intangible things in our experience, like thought, really can shape our world. And so I'm a huge fan of your work. Sure. Going back up to two things you mentioned earlier, one intrigues me, and um, this is kind of a private inquiry of mine, and I and my colleagues have a lot of debate about the role of material, material stimuli and energy and what the relationships they have to each other. And there are people in the material camp who say it's hormones, neurotransmitters, it's cells, molecules, people in the energy camp say it's energy. And uh, one of the early forms of energy psychology, in fact, one of the very earliest forms in the 70s, was called thought field therapy. And the idea is that there are thought fields that are present and people enter these fields or, or are captured by these fields and then act out those experiences. They kind of, get, they, they can host those fields. Uh, Eckhart Tolle, his, his, his work is in psychology and spirituality, but, but I think it's pretty relevant. He talks about the pain body. And as a counselor, I'm sure you know there are people who walk into your office and you just feel the pain body. I know a lot of the veterans we preach at the Veterans Rest Project, they, they come into our either the virtual sessions or the online sessions and you can just feel the heavy energy of pain, but soul feel they inhabit. So what well, you said something that was really intriguing is that the anxiety attached itself to different things from the age of two onwards. So it was like this free-floating anxiety looking for something to, to grab onto and make itself out, but it was something, it's something that energy feels to you as well. Yeah, I really, I really resonate with that, and I'm glad that you said that because it really did feel as if, you know, the anxiety was looking for things to grab onto in my own thinking, in, you know, knowing that my, my biggest triggers were always fears of health concerns. So is something wrong with my body? Do I have something wrong with me? Do I need to get treatment? Do I need to see a doctor? And it could be the slightest little fear thought like that, and boom, it's like the anxiety just, it found its target. You know, it found its place to latch onto, and then it would just balloon and grow from there. And so I really had to start to learn to catch those subtle thoughts to really start to notice when I flip because it was as if I like to use the image of a spiral staircase banister and I've never successfully slid down a staircase it's like so much fun but I like to think about you know in the case of anxiety in my experience attack and grab onto one anxious thought and start you know pumping your fear into it and it's as if you slide right down that railing and boom you're in the basement and there you are like fear then is just what you know that becomes your reality so in my experience, it was a very slippery slope, and having to really learn that the anxiety thoughts really are just thoughts, and I don't actually have to be pumping the belief into them and freaking myself out constantly. So you make that cognitive distinction that uh, I'm having a thought, and I don't need to put my full focus there. Is that how you did it? That was one of the ways. Now, with the practice of A Course in Miracles, the reason it was an approach that just happened to click for me. It was an approach that happened to work for me, and I believe that there's many pathways that are going to take us to the same place. But I love the idea in A Course in Miracles that it's teaching us 
to distinguish between these two thought systems, we can say, in our mind, the fear-based thought system that we all know so well that's full of judgment and doubt. But then there's this other thought system, this loving thought system, positive energy, you know, we might call it that. And in catching the negative thought, I was learning through A Course in Miracles that rather than even trying to just fix that negative thought into a positive thought, I could turn to what I believed I had in my mind, which was right-mindedness or a loving thought system. I could say to that part of my mind, I want you to be in charge. You know, I want you to fix this negative thought. You to give me something, some sort of inspiration back that is going to teach me about peace, that's going to teach me about about love. So conceptualizing it that way just really resonated with me. It really clicked. And I really have still used that as a basis for my operating system with how I interact with the world. And I really believe that it's changed my brain as a result because I don't have the anxiety issues that I used to. I'm light here from my panic attack days and from my overwhelming worry days. And yeah, this work just really excites me and it's, it gives me so much hope for how we can help others. The second question I had, or why I think what you said earlier, was how you initially had no time of spirituality and it sounds like your mom had been on a mission for some time to <laughs> change your mind, change your thoughts about that and eventually uh, it, she succeeded and you were willing to, to give it a, a shot. And so many people seem to see their problems and uh, their life challenges as separate from the spiritual life. It's like, okay, meditate and feel good here, maybe, but then you go and do the stuff over here, and that doesn't have much of an effect on the other part of our lives. But people hold, say, you know, the, the, the best that we can do sometimes is say, well, I have a meditation practice, I have a spiritual life, but it's like, that, that's part of me over here. It doesn't infuse everything you do. And so, um, I, I just been struck by you advocating spirituality and its effect on, on you. I think these people realize that the potential that spirituality has to, to change their the material lives, their minds, their worldviews, their attitudes, their thinking, they would um, they would realize it is a potent mental and physical health intervention. Yes, I love how you say that, that it is potent, because it really, really is potent. And I would catch myself, and I'm sure others can relate to this, that, oh, I'll meditate when I feel better, or, oh, you know, I'll get to my spiritual practice when I feel peaceful. <laughs> but that's what it's there for. It doesn't have to be this separate thing apart from our everyday lives. It can very much be a way that we live. And I think it's important, you know, with spirituality, we can so easily lapse into thinking that it's about religion or it's about something organized or something specific, whereas to me, spirituality is much more broad. It's very individual, and it's really just about a connection with something greater than ourselves, even if it's just that we believe in the importance of cultivating love and compassion and peace. You know, it doesn't have to equate to, you know, specific types of religious beliefs. So I think that you said it beautifully, that spirituality is very potent as an intervention, and that was the only thing that really helped me get to the root of my anxiety. It really was the only thing that really helped me get in there and start to exhume the deep fears that I was carrying around with myself, within myself all the time. Was there a time or a day or a pivot point when suddenly things changed or was gradual? It was. That's a wonderful question in that my first panic attack was my sophomore year of college, and this is back in the late 90s, and that exploration, starting to dive into A Course in Miracles, I started reading things that were just so profound and so comforting, and so it was as if the anxiety diminished a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more, but 
fear, I like to think about fear as like a shapeshifter. As I said before, it will morph and change and, you know, maybe not take one shape anymore if we heal one phobia, but then it pops up in another place. And my journey was that in that, you know, certain fears got better, but I still couldn't get on the plane or I still had a lot of anxiety about health. So it was in 2009. So the gradual decline in anxiety happened from late 90s to about 2009. Then in 2009, I actually ended up going into another very significant episode of anxiety. And I realized that I was actually using my spiritual practice as a band-aid. I was running to it to feel better. I feel better. Then I'd put it down and go back to doing what I was doing. Just like we touched about, you touched on before. In 2009, 2010, I realized that I had to start allowing myself to face the anxiety. And with the example that I just gave of how I conceptualize the, you know, the voice of fear in the mind and the voice of love in the mind, I realized I started to have to look at that anxiety rather than running away from it and avoiding it and wishing it away. I had to start looking at it with this part of my loving mind, with my higher mind, with my higher self, however you want to say it. And in doing so, it was almost as if like in the mindfulness-based approaches, how we are encouraged not to run away from our experience. We're encouraged to be with our experience as it's happening. It's almost like you can think of it that way. Rather than running away from the anxiety and therefore it kind of growing because I'm avoiding it and it's still something scary, now starting to face it, starting to let myself feel it, but imagining that I'm not looking at it alone because I'm imagining that there is the voice of love. That voice of love. Karen showed us this process you went through where you learned to tune into that voice of love and it helped you with your healing. Yes, I'll continue with that theme with the experience that I was sharing where I learned after the anxiety, you know, gradually getting better, but then having a mega big relapse in 2009 in facing it and turning toward it and imagining looking at it with the, the voice of love in my mind. And as I was saying, with mindfulness, with, you know, facing our experience rather than running away from it, it was as if, just like the sun will burn away fog when the sun shines down on the fog, it was as if starting to turn toward my difficulties with this idea of the voice of love in my mind, looking at it with the voice of love in my mind, it started to really shift at that point. And that's where in 2010, about, I'll say, that's when I started really noticing fears start to drop away, and I knew I needed to write down what was helping me. And so the results are the pages of From Anxiety to Love, which contain all the principles of the Course in Miracles that were so important in my healing journey in, in undoing anxiety. So this idea of strengthening the voice of love really comes down to first distinguishing between the incessant chatter of that monkey mind that we all know so well, and that voice of fear that creeps of on the low end of the anxiety spectrum that looks like the what if. What if this is going to happen? What if that's going to happen? I should have done this. I should have done that. An inability to sit still. You know, you might sit still, but you feel like you have to shake your foot because you have this sort of nervous energy. And that, we have to start to identify, is an expression of maybe very subtle fear or subtle anxiety. It's still anxiety. The voice of love in our mind, which is not really a voice, I don't expect experience it as a voice, I experience it more as a feeling, more of an internal resonance feeling, kind of like that gut instinct that we know, that we've all had an experience of, that intuitive sort of knowing when you just know something. It's more like that. And we have to cultivate a relationship with it. And what I mean by that is practice getting in touch with it, actually practice tuning into this more quiet part of our mind. You know, A Course in Miracles says that the ego, which is the fearful voice, that's A Course in Miracles term for that voice of fear, the ego, the ego always speaks first and loudest. So we're always going to hear 
can notice. Right. But the voice of love, which is, again, the voice, the feeling of our true self, our higher mind, whatever you want to call it, that voice doesn't speak first necessarily, but it always answers. So in other words, that guidance, that intuition is always there, but if we're giving our focus to that fearful energy, if we're tuned in and plugged into that fearful radio station, we're not going to hear that other station that's in our minds or in our bodies, maybe better said, and tune into it. You know, we're not going to practice developing that relationship because this really is a a practice. Like any other practice that we might do, meditation, journaling, self-help, this is a practice also, tuning into this loving thought system in our mind. What if a person tries that and they can't do it? And i got to say that I mean, I've been meditating for many, many years. I joined an ashram when I was 15 years old and began to meditate and began to do energy healing. And still, I have days when, one, one day last week, when I, I had some negative thoughts going on, and I could not shake it. It was like, it was like having a car with a flat tire and it keeps pulling in one direction. So you pull it in the other direction, you correct, and then it keeps pulling in that direction. You, you, you correct it, pull it back in the other direction. Then you take your hands off the wheel, bam, you're in the ditch. And, you know, I, I just, it wasn't any kind of big negative thought, but it was a sense of just coming back over and over and over, and over again. And sometimes in my live workshop, people say, you know, don't you've been doing this stuff for, you know, 45 years. Don't get to a point where you're, it, you're just possible to do stuff and it's easy. And it's like, it doesn't get easier. I mean, you do, you do condition yourself to it, but there are those days where it's really hard to pull yourself loose. So the early days, before you have that 10 or 15 years of practice, how do you pull yourself loose from those, those patterns that just grab your attention? That's a really, really fantastic question. And the first thing that I would instruct somebody to do is to remember the importance of non-judgment. So we, if we're in that struggle, if we're hooked by that fear thought, right. we're immediately going to go into thinking, I shouldn't be thinking this way. I shouldn't have this thought. I should feel a different way. I shouldn't be, you know, X, Y, or Z. That's self-judgment. That's a form of self-judgment. And so if we can allow ourselves to be where we are, if we can acknowledge, okay, my mind is just going bonkers today. It's all caught up in fear. And I'm going to acknowledge that. And I'm going to accept that that's where I am right now. Because otherwise, if we start really wanting it to be different, we get into that struggle that you just decide, that you just described so well of, you know, trying to, the car wants to go this way. We keep pulling it that way. It turns into that struggle and that strain. So this is where I love the practice of mindfulness so much. And, you know, there's so many research studies showing how beneficial mindfulness is for our bodies and for our brains. One of the foundational principles of mindfulness is this practice of non-judgment and allowing ourselves to be as we are and with our experience. For somebody who is really stuck in that fearful thought, I would say, can you accept that you are, that this is where you are right now? Can you let yourself experience that negative thought? Can you let yourself just be where you are? And in letting yourself be where you are, suddenly it becomes okay (laughs) that you're thinking negatively or hooked by that fear, which opens up the ability now to start to move through it. It opens up an ability to start to almost soften into the moment to allow yourself to pass through that feeling rather than snacking into it as if it's a solid, solid wall. So I personally really like that approach because it's worked for me and it's been gentle for me as well. I'm also intrigued because you have that big relapse and so you were making so much progress and then you have the relapse and so that also is worth being non-judgmental about when we do have those relapses, when things aren't working, when we're applying our tools, maybe we aren't getting very far, just to love ourselves and, and take care of ourselves. Carl Rogers, I don't know if that name is resonant to you, but he was a very, very influential therapist in the 1950s and onward, and he said the paradox of change is that it only begins when you accept yourself just the way you are. <laughs> yeah. 
Carl Rogers, and you're hitting on a very important point, and this is actually a point that I make in the book, that it's really important that we look at all of our challenges that arise, even if we think that they're a setback, that we look at them as opportunities to grow. Because a way of conceptualizing this system that my book teaches and that, of course, Miracles teaches is that if you think about an onion, let's say at the center of that onion is our awareness of love. The center of the onion is our awareness of the loving energy that I believe we all share and that we all have within ourselves. However, we bury that in layers of fear. So those are the layers of the onion on top of our awareness of love and we have these fear blocks that get in our way from really experiencing that love that we are made of. And so every time a challenge comes up, every time it seems like we're regressing, if we can remember that this is just another layer of the onion that's coming up so we have a chance to heal it, we have a chance to move through it, we have a chance to see it differently, it becomes then a beautiful thing when our challenges arise because they're opportunities to practice instead of judging them as major, you know, setbacks because they're not. I believe we're always moving in a forward motion. I love that analogy of the onion and your issues, problems that arise. Corinne, this is a wonderful analogy of the onion, peeling the onion, and staying with the process as you go through those layers. But what if there are people who just have such big onions, so many layers, that they get discouraged at the magnitude of the top? Or the magnitude of their onion, right? <laughs> so I love that question because inherent in that question is that same of, I'm never going to get there. My onion is too big. I have too many layers. And right there is that voice of, fear. That's that ego voice in the mind trying to keep you status quo, trying to keep you where you are instead of remembering love. Now, one of the things that I will say to people is that if your anxiety is kicking up, that can actually be a sign that you're making progress because if you're getting closer to the center of that onion, if you're getting closer to the awareness of love's presence that's within all of us, sometimes that ego part of the mind feels a little threatened. It feels like we're going to stop listening to it if we start to really, you know, tune into this loving thought system. And so it might try kicking up more anxiety or more pain to keep your attention on it. I like to think about this fearful voice or this ego voice in our mind as dangling, you know, a shiny token out in front of us, hoping that we're going to take the bait. So in times when I felt like maybe I was making progress with, with experiencing peace, of course, ultimately, something challenging is going to come up to tempt me, to tempt me to re-engage with that fear. And so it's important for us to remember that it's not that we have really big onions or like, you know, many, many, many layers. One of the things that I love about A Course in Miracles is that it teaches that you don't have to follow fear through all of its circuitous roots in order to heal it. That would take eons, (laughs) but the one core belief that we all hold in our minds is that we are separate from love, and I'm talking about the divine love of the universe. We have a core belief that we're somehow separated from that, and once we heal that belief, all the other fears just fall away. And another way of saying this is that the closer that you come to experiencing your true self, your true nature, this, this love that I truly believe is in all of us, we can find that fears just fall away, anxieties just fall away. So, and I have many, many personal examples of that in my own life. So it's really important for us to remember that if we are feeling discouraged, it's okay. I felt discouraged many times on the journey, but I was willing to keep at it. This is where the practice piece 
comes in, where we keep stepping, you know, one foot in front of the other. We keep going. If you feel discouraged, allow yourself to feel it and take a deep breath and continue, you know, be determined to move on because I truly believe that happiness is our birthright. This is what we are here to wake up to. And any challenge that arises, again, like we said already, is just that opportunity to grow. It is. It certainly is. Yeah. And so as you're offering meditation classes and you're leading people and giving them this kind of experience, what do you find some of the challenges are people face and what's the trajectory that they go through as they begin to get into this work? Great question. So I can answer that question really from two different perspectives because I do teach A Course in Miracles, so I lead um, and, and I teach classes now online, you know, in the method that I talk about in my book, and also the mindfulness meditation classes. So we could say the one set of classes are in the Course in Miracles realm. The other set of classes that I teach actually at Bank of America each week are in the mindfulness meditation realm. And students in both classes, again, it's a very common experience in both classes for people to feel like, you know, they're making progress and then have a setback and, you know, make some more progress and have a setback. So this journey is really about showing up, being willing to do the work despite whatever's happening. In my meditation classes at Bank of America, the mindfulness classes, it's amazing. And I know that you've witnessed this too, you know, with people that you work with, to hear somebody say that just by showing up once a week to get quiet, to practice being present, to just focus on breathing. Some folks integrate that elsewhere. Some folks maybe just do it during that class. But there's always stories of people reporting that other people start to notice that they're different. Other people start to say, hey, you didn't just freak out when that person cut you off. What's going on? You know, what are you doing? And it's this thing where I think everybody experiences mind-wandering or everybody experiences challenges. But as we continue to practice, it's as if that time between when we lose awareness and when we realize we've lost it, that time gets shorter. So it's like we still have mind-wandering, we still have challenges, but the time between, you know, the recovery time gets shorter and shorter and shorter as we as we process and, you know, do this work and, and engage with it to really, yeah, catch ourselves more quickly. So we correct ourselves much more quickly once we know where we're aiming for, the kind of internal state. I like the way you describe that voice of love, too, is not a literal voice, but more of a gut feeling. So you know about that gut I'm also so intrigued by the work of neuroscientists now who show us that those gut feelings are more than just emotional and physical sensations. They're actually thousands of hormones in your birth will we'll see, for example, research that shows that the ratios of serotonin and dopamine start to change in people's brains, and the ratios of uh, various stress hormones start to change in their bodies, and all kinds of effects occur that are literal and physical. So what begins as that gut sensation, as that gut feeling, as that measured objectively, biologically, in terms of how people are shifting. So, what would you tell somebody who is wanting to do this, is perhaps overwhelmed by the magnitude of the task, doesn't really know for a fact that this can help them, and they are in that state of intense anxiety or panic? What's the very first thing they can do? What's the life preserver you throw them? I throw them a number of different life preservers, so it's hard to just pick one, but the first thing that I might actually say to somebody is just remember where I've come from as well. I've been in those shoes where you just feel like you are drowning and that it's completely overwhelming and that there's no way out. So I'd, I'd prompt somebody to just remember that and hope that I can be that example, but I would also share a, a number of other things. Number one, when you're overwhelmed with anxiety, when it maybe even feels like you're having a panic attack, that really intense, abrupt surge of fear where it feels like you're just world is collapsing and caving in. The first thing that people often do is think that they're going crazy. So I would remind somebody, you are not going crazy. 
this is just a panic attack. And the next thing that I would tell somebody is that remember that anxiety, the experience of anxiety happens in linear time, which means it's going to come to an end. It's not going to last forever. I used to be afraid that my mind was going to just crack and I was going to be lost in anxiety for eons, forever. And anxiety happens in linear time, which means it has a start and it has an end. So we can actually practice a a technique that I can share now to help us work through that, that tough time. And it's very, very simple. You don't have to be having a panic attack or an anxiety attack to benefit from this. We can all do this right now. As long as you're not driving while you're listening, if you have both hands free, you can place one hand on your chest and the other hand on your belly. And you can just notice your torso. Just notice how your torso is moving as you breathe. You might notice that that top hand, if that top hand is doing most of the moving and that bottom hand feels mostly still, that likely means that you are tightening your belly, that you are constricting your belly. And this is an anxious breath. This is a stressed out breath when we're just breathing from very high up in the chest. But culturally, we're also told to suck in our stomach, right? Have a very tight stomach. And that doesn't help for having a relaxed diaphragmatic breath. So right now, if you notice that your chest is doing most of the moving, I would just prompt you to just soften your abdominal muscles. You don't even have to change your breath. You don't have to do anything with, you know, taking deep breaths or anything. Just soften those abdominal muscles. And imagine a puppy or a baby and how when they breathe, when that puppy or that baby breathes, they're breathing with their whole belly. Their whole belly is rising and falling. And so we can just embody that same relaxed belly breath and instantly that can change our physiology. That can help bring our arousal level down. If you're having panic or anxiety, this can be helpful. Even if you're not, this can be helpful to take you from wherever you are down a notch. So that's the other technique that I would share as well. What I also like about that technique is somatic body-based and when I looked at all the new effective techniques that are making the way to psychotherapy like EMDR, like somatic experiencing, like yoga therapy, like EFT tapping and acupressure, what they have in common is they keep people in their bodies and if you stay in your body remember you have a body <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, we our heads. <laughs> yeah I love that idea of linear time too because then uh, you do remember that because it's not middle and end and you don't get get lost there that's people do get lost there they can get so overwhelmed they forget they have a body and just be in that, that space yeah absolutely and we I, I love what you said too about remembering that you have a body because we anxiety brings us up into our heads and we can get locked there we can get stuck in our thinking and that pattern, you know, of, of thought dropping into our body, feeling our feet on the floor, feeling our seat, feeling yourself supported by the chair, coming into your body and sensing it can help break that anxiety cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's really worth remembering whatever you do to anchor it in the body, even if you have a wonderful, wonderful experience, then anchoring that in the body as well and then, and then grounding whatever you do there. But certainly, if you're having a negative experience, remembering you have a body and that you're safe. And that, that's often not enough. But for the active pressure technique or the, or the, the, the tapping with the MDR, it can be remind people to stay wild in the middle of that. And then they realize that, oh, okay, you know, this isn't a real event. It's just something that, that's commodifying my mind and distracting my attention. But it's just something that is temporary and passing. I slow the body. I'm safe. There's no tiger in the room with me. And that realization is, is powerful. So anything else that you'd like to close with just in the last thing? I would love to just share with listeners the last sentence of my book that I, maybe not the very last sentence, but I close with a brief story about how my stepdad, when I was knocked on the couch with anxiety, mascara, you know, down my cheeks from crying, he looked at me in my eyes and he said, Corinne, the light in you is too bright to fail. And so I say that to everybody listening, the light in you is 
too bright to fail. We're going to make it. We're all doing this work together. I truly believe that as each of us joins in our own healing, we are helping to heal others and to heal the world as well. So the light in you is too bright to fail. That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Corinne. All the best. And again, your website is from anxiety to love.com. 